136. Uh, last Sunday, if you were with us, you'll remember that Phil did an excellent job of helping us understand King Saul's downward spiral. As we're working our way through this book of 1 Samuel, we have found that Saul, at the end of the day, was not a man committed to obeying God. When he disobeyed, he didn't follow through with genuine repentance. And when he was given opportunity to do so, he tended to blame other people for his own failures. Consequently, his rejection of God's word led to Samuel bringing the news that God had rejected him. His kingdom would not last and his sons would not rule on the throne. This is an important reminder for us that God does not leave unaccountable anyone who misrepresents him, anyone who harms his people. So Saul, in the end, we've learned, together would have to go. Israel had insisted on having a king like all the other nations, and that's what they got, a king that would be a failure. Essentially, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is then about answering this question, who would take over the kingdom after Saul? And in what way? Who would rule instead of Saul? Well, that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Jordan, one of Church Amel's newest members, is going to come read for us. He'll read verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass, and has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, "Are all your sons here?" And he said, "There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep." And Samuel said to Jesse, "Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here." And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him, for this is he." Then Samuel took the horn and oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. 
from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Thank you, brother. Did you hear the reindeers landing on the roof? I don't know. That was weird. Normally, they don't come on Sunday mornings. Chapter 16 begins with a, a window, if you will, wide open into Samuel's innermost thoughts and feelings. Samuel had led the people of God as a prophet and a judge for decades. And by God's grace, he'd been faithful to obey God. Part of that obedience had been to anoint Saul. It was Samuel who told Saul he'd take the throne. And it was Samuel who found Saul so frequently disobeying. It seems that that disobedience of Saul had caused Samuel to be in a state of ongoing grief and sorrow. His, his leadership in that way was an incredibly lonely endeavor. When there's a lousy leader, things inevitably end up going badly for people under that leadership, not to mention the way in which God himself is not honored. And Samuel, as he considered all of that, was a man full of sorrow. Now, church, we should make no mistake, it is good and godly and necessary to grieve over things not being the way they're supposed to be. And yet, there are times in which that grief must pass. There's a time with God's help to lift up your head and to move on to whatever new God has next. Here in 1 Samuel 6, we find that moment for Samuel. God spoke to Samuel and he said that you're to now take Saul. He's no longer king. It's time to anoint a new king. If you look again at verse 2, I won't read it, but just let your eyes glance over it, you'll see that Samuel, for the very first time in the book of 1 Samuel, we find him hesitant. In fact, we find him afraid. If you were to turn to the back of your Bible and look at the maps back there, you would see that for Samuel to travel from his house up to Bethlehem, where Jesse lived, he would have had to pass directly through the town that Saul lived in. He and Saul were not exactly on good terms at this point. And so Samuel, as he considered that journey, considered himself a man at risk. He didn't want to go. He thought that Saul might kill him. He's reluctant. It's almost as though he's saying, God, I've done everything else you've asked. Lots of tough things but I don't want to do that one. You ever felt like that? God, I've done this and this and this, but I'm not going to do that. That's the point Samuel was at. And yet, God directed him to go, gave him a plan. I think verse 4, the first half is so helpful to us in this way as we consider our own lives. It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Despite his fear and initial reluctance, reluctance, when it actually came time, he went. He obeyed. There's a tremendous 
application here for us. Church, when we rightly interpret the Bible, the Scriptures tell us all that God expects us to do and to believe. And they teach us that the Spirit is the power of God that we might obey. And so even when we face things that we don't want to do, even when we face things we're afraid to do, Samuel holds up the way for us. When God's words instructs us to do something difficult, do we do it? Do you do it? Is there anything you're, you've read of late that you know you're supposed to do, and yet you've been saying no? Maybe out of fear, maybe just a general reluctance. Well, may Samuel's example encourage our obedience. You see, Christians, above everything else, are people who hear God's Word, and by God's grace, we obey. If there's something you've been saying no to, then today is a day to say yes. Perhaps even now as I'm talking, you can take a moment in prayer and reflection and commit yourself to obeying like Samuel did. And then when I finish, I want to encourage you to turn to somebody near you and to tell them, here's what I've told God I will follow through on, that they might themselves commit to walking with you send you a text, give you a call this week and encourage you and help hold you accountable and support you to follow through. Now, if we turn our eyes to the next paragraph, verses 6 to 13, we find a fascinating couple of verses. We don't know exactly what Samuel told Jesse, but somehow Samuel communicated, I'm here in a unique moment in order that we would offer up a sacrifice, worship God at a feast, and then I'm going to appoint one of your sons to do something special. And so Jesse's first son comes along. His name was Eliab. Almost certainly, Eliab would have been Jesse's oldest son. And he must have had something of a commanding physical presence. Like Saul, he was probably tall. And like me, he was probably muscular. He looked the part. He looked like a king. He appeared to be a person of power. And so Samuel himself looked at Eliab and thought, that's going to be the king. Friend, Samuel should have known better. But even Samuel fell into the trap of seeing superficially. See, he looked at his outward appearance and he thought, that guy, look at him. If anybody's to be king, that guy should be. Samuel saw and prioritized appearance over character, which set up the moment in which the Lord then spoke one of the most important principles found in the entire Bible. It's worth reading again. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks on the heart. 
seeing is one of the great themes of this chapter over and over and over again. The chapter emphasizes and contrasts God's sight with people's sight. Brothers and sisters, there are essentially two ways to look at life. You can live for and look upon external appearances, or you can live for and look on inward godliness. It really is that simple. Our natural fallen bent is to be consumed by the outward facade, what, what we look like, what we wear, what shapes our bodies are in, what possessions we have and how many of them we've amassed, what accomplishments we've posted on our profiles, who we're friends with and what they have accomplished. These things consume us. Appearance appears to be everything. But there's a problem. Even if your outward appearance is such that everything has fallen into place, and brothers and sisters, don't you see how fleeting that appearance is in fact turning out to be? Eliab, even if he was a man of great stature, as he got older, what happened? He shrunk. And friend, whatever you're looking to as the basis for your outward worth, it is fleeting. It is passing. Outward appearance is at best momentary, and it is no predictor of whether or not one will obey God, nor is it an accurate conveyor of the true state of your relationship with God. You see, the Lord does not look on appearances. He doesn't prioritize what's on the outside. He's not fooled in that way like we are. Instead, He looks on the inside. God is focused on the heart. Your heart is that hugely significant immaterial part of you. You might call it the, the inner life or the, the steering wheel of your soul. Your heart is the most important thing about you. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says it this way, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Or from it flow the springs of life. Friend, everything downstream from you, everything you touch, everything you say, everything you think, everything you do, all flows from the heart. We spotlight appearances and superficialities and externals, but God highlights the heart. He says what you look like isn't all that important. Instead, the disposition of your inner life. That's what matters. Eliab's height, Eliab's stature might have made him appear to be fit to be king in Samuel's eyes. But in God's eyes, in the eyes that truly matter, Eliab's heart was apparently not set on God. God saw the true Eliab, and therefore Eliab would not do 
For time's sake, we can't linger any longer on this principle, but suffice it to say that if you don't understand and prioritize the heart, then you will not make sense of any of the Bible. For this is the central message of the Scriptures. Friend, God's grand objective is to have a people for Himself who will worship Him from the heart. People with hearts of purity, people with hearts of love, generosity, people with hearts of happy obedience. But the great obstacle to that objective is that every human heart is dead. It's rotten. It's irrevocably bent away from God. And yet God in His great, and mer- great mercy has not left us with no hope. He has promised that through Christ, God's word would form God's people and thereby He would give them new hearts. If you're new to Christianity, understand that the Christian faith is not merely a message about changing your externals. It's not mainly about operating in a different way in everyday life. No, it's about a changed heart. It's about God performing a heart transplant. You see, the message of the gospel is that God in His grace can take that stony dead heart and give you a new one, a heart that over time will truly learn to beat for Him. God had seen what was in Saul, and because he didn't repent, because there was no lasting heart change for Saul, then God looked for a new king. But verse 7 is clear that that king would not be Eliab. And so, in what was probably a very odd circumstance and an odd time inside Jesse's house, one by one, every other son of Jesse was brought forward before Saul. Samuel, I mean. There's too many S names. It's driving me nuts. Each son was brought forward. And in each one of them, Samuel said, not him. Not him. Not him. Not him. And one little detail that's easy to miss is by the time he'd gone through all of these sons, none of them being the one God had chosen to be king, Samuel was so confident and certain of God's word that he didn't look at God and say, God, you've made some kind of mistake. You, you Googled me to the wrong address. He ain't here. No, he simply looked at Jesse and said, Jesse, you got any other kids that aren't here? And in that moment, verse 11 is rather comical. Essentially, Jesse says, I've got one more kid, but he's the runt of the litter. You won't want him. He's just a little twerp, and he's out in the pasture with the sheep. So unlikely was David to be chosen for anything meaningful that his own father didn't bother to go out and get him. He's just the young shepherd boy. He was not one that looked like king 
material. But as the story goes, he, in fact, did come. And as David walked in that room, the Lord told Samuel, there he is. He is the one of my own choosing. And then Saul anointed him. Samuel, dang it, anointed him as king. David, very likely at this point, was just a young teen. And his father and his brothers watched as Samuel took that oil and poured it on David's head. And in so doing, he designated him for this special role of service that God would have for him. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is the word Messiah. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christos, which is the English word for Christ. Right now, if you know the biblical story, your brain is exploding because it's, it's right here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that we're, we're told of the Messiah David who would be in a small way something of what would come in Jesus. Christ. This is how David enters the pages of the Bible. It's been said that of all people who lived in antiquity, religious or not, we know the most about David. Some 66 chapters in the Bible are dedicated specifically to David. Hundreds of verses tell us about David. From a mere shepherd boy to the greatest of the Old Testament kings, David would become an incredibly special leader. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, because from chapter 16, literally through the end of 1 Samuel, David is struggling to wait until God would actually set him on the throne of Israel. It was not a smooth road. But God was purposeful in that. It seems that he needed to mold and shape David for the throne through a long series of crises and hardship. David, as many of you know, went on to write many of the most famous psalms in the Bible. He'd be a tremendous source of good. He's the primary forerunner to Jesus. And here in chapter 16, it says he was anointed with the Spirit and that spirit never left him. This first half of the chapter is, is simple. We can summarize it by saying God chose David, a man after his own heart. Now, ironically, the second half of the chapter also involves David being chosen. But this time... The choosing is by Saul. Look with me at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from the Lord is from God is tormenting you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread. Every time I read that, I think, what does that mean? Is this like a dead donkey that's been covered in bread? I don't understand. Jesse took this donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine. And a young goat, the goat is not laden with bread, by the way, and sent them to David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. If you've been with us these months of working through this book, you'll remember that early in the book of 1 Samuel, a woman named Hannah prayed. She prayed as she considered the way in which God lifts up the broken and simultaneously brings down the proud. As we talked about 1 Samuel chapter 2, we said that God is a God of shocking reversals. And 1 Samuel 16 is certainly yet another example of that principle. David, the shepherd boy, the guy from nowhere, is raised up. And Saul, the person with all the power in the story, the king of Israel, is brought low. And don't miss the irony of the way in which the narrator sets this up for us. The rejected king finds comfort from the newly anointed king. Friend, only God can do that. Now, one aspect of this paragraph that might be troubling to some of us in the room is the phrase, a harmful spirit from the Lord, in verse 14, and a harmful spirit from God, in verse 15. So what I thought we'd do is just ask Phil if he'd come up and clear this up for us. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of speculation among commentators over exactly what those phrases mean. So let me take a couple of minutes and try to give you the options that are present to us. One of them is not that we simply take some mental scissors and cut this phrase out of our Bibles. It's there. It's not a mistake. All of God's Word is good. We've got to deal with it. The bottom line is that as the Spirit of God departed from Saul, 
meaning that God no longer empowered Saul for the work of being king. That as the spirit left, another spirit seemed to come upon Saul and trouble him intermittently from then on. And the passage without question says the troublesome spirit was sent by God. In fact, it seems to go out of its way to emphasize that point. And so obviously the question, or the problem, if you will, that this raises for us is this. If God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, if God is not evil and is not tempted by evil and never tempts anyone by evil, then how could a harmful spirit have come from God? Well, much could be said here, but whether the word spirit in these verses refers to number one, an angel from God who brought judgment on Saul, or number two, a demon, or number three, a general sense of calamity and of trouble. And by the way, it could be any of those. The Old Testament word for spirit is used in all those ways. Number one, an an angel sent to judge Saul. Number two, a demon. Number three, a, a spirit or a demeanor of trouble. Whichever one of those options this, in fact, ultimately refers to, the larger point is that God's rule is absolute. Friends, all things are fully and finally under God's authority because God is the only sovereign. Nothing anywhere to anyone slips through the cracks when God's not looking. God doesn't ever say, oops. God doesn't take naps and then things just happen. Whatever the Spirit was, Friends, it is God's prerogative to do with Saul whatever he wanted. And as uncomfortable as you might be with this, it is also God's prerogative to do with you whatever he wants. Remember, Saul is not an innocent bystander. Saul, up to this point, has rejected God. He has practiced phony repentance. He didn't listen to God's word. He didn't obey. And certainly as a man put in a position of great responsibility, he has shown himself as one who did not deserve God's protection. So God took the kingdom from him and God gave him trouble instead. In Saul's case, this trouble came in the form of a spirit troubling him. Most likely... The spirit troubling him was an angel bringing about judgment for Saul's persistent unbelief, his disobedience, his lack of repentance. Friend, in that way, Saul's judgment is a warning of a far more terrible judgment of hell for those who remain in persistent unbelief. If if this half of this chapter makes us squirm. How much more ought the reality 
of a judgment in hell that never, ever ends. The guilty will not go unpunished. May this troubling spirit cause us who know Jesus to be much more emboldened to love people enough to tell them the truth about Jesus. But here in this chapter, even in trouble, God sent mercy. The mercy in this chapter came in the form of David. David played the lyre, and his music brought comfort and relief to Saul. I've thought a lot about this week. I thought a lot this week about why did the circumstances play themselves out this way? Specifically, why did God sovereignly ensure that it was David who would be the one that would bring comfort to Saul? Why did the rejected king receive mercy from the newly anointed king? The text ultimately doesn't answer that question. But I can't help but wonder, Is it because all those times David looked on Saul and he saw the effect of disobedience? And as God spoke and brought mercy through him, he himself was warned that he might not be a man who would abuse authority. This chapter is about the fact that God chose David, the most unlikely candidate to become king. And ironically, in shocking reversal, Saul chose David too. But if we... If we take a wide-angle lens and we zoom out further and we look at 1 Samuel 16 in the light of the whole biblical story, then this chapter certainly helps us to understand Jesus much better. You see, David, in the rest of the biblical story we'll find, was a great king, the best king Israel had. And yet, even David wasn't perfect. He was the anointed one, but he failed to obey God perfectly. And if God sends a leader and that leader fails to lead God's people into a place where they too can experience having new hearts, then what hope is there? Friends, the hope ultimately is that God promised to send a better David. A descendant of King David would come, and he would be the anointed one who would reign, not temporarily, but forever. A king who would never fail. His name is Jesus. If we fast forward from 1 Samuel chapter 16 through the rest of the Old Testament, 
through the Gospels, where we see Jesus, he came from heaven, became a man, grew up as a nobody, became the most unlikely of all candidates, died on a cross, rose again in victory. And there in that resurrection, God anointed him with a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then he ascended back to heaven to sit on the throne where he is right now. And then he commissioned his followers that they would go into all the world and preach that gospel, that good news. One of those followers recounted the history of Israel. Acts chapter 13 says it this way. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, David has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Friend, if you've never turned from sin and turned to Jesus, the offer of the gospel stands. That offer is that God will take your stony, dead, wicked heart and exchange it for a new heart. God will give you new life if you will but turn from your sin and turn to Him. And brother, sister, if you have already found Christ, or rather to be more precise, if Christ has already found you, but you have found yourself drifting back towards living as though you still have that old heart, then friend, won't you renew yourself before Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter through which we have been told so clearly of your great love for us. We pray for the non-Christian in the room, who the person who has yet to turn from sin and turn to you, that even now, you would open their eyes to see what a good God you are. That you'd reveal to them the extent of their need for you that, like so many of us in the room, they might see and savor how great Jesus is. We pray that new hearts, hearts being transplanted, dead hearts taken, new hearts given, would happen in this room today. And we pray for those of us, Lord, who have already experienced this new birth, but have not been walking faithfully with you, that, God, we would both turn from our sin and see afresh and anew the mercy and grace given us in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name.